Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We have international guests. We have award winners. We better start. We better. Well, look, with everybody so willing to put things on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, is there any room for secrets in your life? How do you keep a secret? And should you? Well, Maggie Alderson is here, back again. Thank you very much for returning here. Thank you. I love it here. Oh, isn't she great? She's given us another great read in Secret Keeping for Beginners. Well, Maggie, this book once again starts with a family, a mother and three adult daughters. Let's, let's go through them by age. Tessa. Tessa's the oldest and she's the stay-at-home mum. Rather arty and fey and slightly conflicted because although... Although she doesn't work for a living, she does um, paint all the time. She's covered her entire house in murals and she knows that her hard-working younger sisters don't really t- consider what she does work. So she's a bit upset about that. And then we've got the middle sister, Rachel, who's a um, divorced mother of two, work who works very, very hard in interior decorating PR um, and she feels that her sisters don't understand quite how hard she has to work to support her family. And then you've got the younger half-sister, Natasha, who lives in New York, and she's a big, big-shot makeup artist, and um, she knows that her oh, her two older sisters slightly resent her for how much money she has, mm. but she they don't understand the sacrifices that she's made not having a relationship, not having kids. Now. The mother. And the mother joy, I think, might be modelled a little bit on yours. A, li- a modelled on who? Your mother. Is your, was your mother into yoga? Well, she was, yeah, a bit, but she's not really new agey. Joy's very new agey. My mum's a very practical Scottish lass at heart. So, um, no, joy, Joy's not modelled on my mum, but um, I suppose she's modelled on... People of the, that I have met over the years from that sort of very early hippie generation. She was she was she was a very early uptaker for yoga and vegetarianism. And uh, Joy is also carries the crystals and can read auras. And she comes across this man, and she can looks at his aura, and it's all green and glowing, except it's got a big black hole in it, and. She can read them or she thinks she can read them. I mean, I, and, and who was that that she was reading? Oh, that's Simon, who's, who's Rachel's boss. But I did slightly deliberately leave it open. Does she see us or does mm. she think she sees it? So I'm, I'm kind of going to let the reader decide. I'm not sure myself. Okay, so we've got these women and, of course, if you've got women who have got careers, they've also got relationship problems and then there's Simon. Now, I want to read a little bit from um, Secret Keeping for Beginners about Simon. Simon Rathbone, businessman, PR legend, GQ best-dressed list regular, Range Rover, SDV 8 driver, Chester Terrace apartment owner, alpha male who had to remind himself to use his 
business brain, not his trouser brain. (laughs) (laughs) This is the the smart, quick humour that you've written into this book, which is just lovely. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes. Blushing. (laughs) Blushing. Well, look, if we're on that little tangent, we should talk about Tessa and her husband, Tom. Now, what's Tom just recently taken over? Well, Tom was a sort of happy-go-lucky guy who used to spend his time on building uh, building yards when they were knocking houses down, retrieving beautiful old fireplaces. He's, um, he's a reclamation man. And he's accidentally become a TV star because one of those producers, one of those house renovation programs, has spotted him mm. and um, realised that he's telegenic. And Tom suddenly finds himself called Tim Chimney. <laughs> he's going around the country, putting old fireplaces back into houses, making them work, and he's just stumbled into it. And of course, he does look good on camera. So there's getting a l- he's getting a lot of attention these days. And Tessa, who's sort of lost a bit of confidence, she's uh, at home. She's sort of not got the drive that her other sisters have. And she's she's looking at her husband Tim, uh, quoting from the book. Tim could make things, mend things, do anything with utter confidence. No wonder women found him so attractive. He was good with his hands. And not just his hands, thought Tessa, smiling to herself. (laughs) Another one of those nice little flippity bits there. And of course, well, Rachel. Rachel's got her two daughters that she loves and a job now that she loves. But Rachel's Rachel's put herself... And Link... Yes. The man, the the bike mechanic. <laughs> mm, enough to say about, oh, about him. Um, and anyway, you've got them all getting together in a most interesting way at Tessa and Tom's big farmhouse. What's being organised there? Oh, it's a shoot for um, a magazine that Rachel, who's who's a real go-getter, has managed to place um, a, a new client uh, for the PR agency that formerly mentioned Simon owns of garden furniture, and she's managed to get it in a magazine. And they're using Rachel's Rachel's using Tessa's garden as the location, and it just so happens that Natasha is over in London doing a big photo shoot, so they're all down there together. And Tessa, who's quite clever at getting other people to do things for her, has um, got Joy to come over to do all the cooking because she's a vegetarian caterer. That's her her career. So they're all there. Well, this is where I think it's great because this is how we usually see advertising done with photographers and beautiful things and beautiful area. But through the book, you've got these young 30, 40-year-old women who are doing so much more on social media and it's all blended in to the book and it's very cleverly done because they're there and it's all causing them a little bit of problems as well as good stuff. They can keep in contact with each other and when one's particularly sad on Skype, they can see how how sad she is. But it's all the social media, it's the blogging and it's the Instagram and it's the Twitter and that keeps the businesses going. And there's uh, there's a big blur between 
your sort of social life with your friends and family on all those platforms and then your professional life and and it I th- and I think it does get blurred for us all especially you know you're trying to, um Rachel's very adept on social media and they're all quite competitive with each other about who's got the most Instagram followers. Yeah. And Rachel is really trying to work it because she wants to get ahead. She wants to have a good career so she can support her family. Meanwhile, Natasha's got this big, glamorous um, Vogue magazine career already. So she's got 100,000 followers on Instagram. Mm. And Rachel's got about 3,000. And there's just that little bit of tension about that and who can get the image up first and also accidentally giving things away when you're doing something um, professionally but then of course all your family are going to see it as well so people have constantly got have to remember to put these filters in but they but then sometimes you don't remember and it and it can cause all kinds of ramifications well this is exactly what it's all about it's this whole thing about public private and secrets mm. because sometimes you, as you said that, that there is that blurring you know and especially when things are, are photographed and put up on or videoed and put up on YouTube or businesses using paparazzi so that that person who knows that there's cameras all around them has to live that that model of what what the company wants them to be Oh, I, I know that sounds... You've got to read the book to work it all out. <laughs> it's great. So, um, and also because this brings us to Natasha, you know, she's got this secret. And this is what the secret, this, the book, Secret Keeping for Beginners. Natasha has her own secret. She doesn't want to disclose that she may or may not be gay because she thinks it might jeopardise her career. Or, you know, we, we get all of this. But it's it gets blown out, and it's really clever the way that um, Maggie Alderson has has incorporated the media control of your private life, even down to Simon, who um, you know he's PR boss. He knows how to control the media, and he knows the rumours that are rife about him because he disappears every weekend. That he may have a a husband that he goes to. And it all comes back to the biggest lie of all. And it's Joy who has that lie. What's she doing? Well, she's, I think of all of them, she's the one who's become most adept at hiding it from herself. And I've got a quote from George Orwell at the front of the book, which is, if you want to keep a secret, you first have to hide it from yourself. Mm. And, that's, and that's what Joy's been doing her whole life. So um, although she seems the one who's most evolved, as she would say, and has, and has resolved the, the issues from her difficult repressed childhood, she's actually the one who's got, been keeping the secret for the longest and it's just locked away inside her. And in contrast to this, we have Branko. Branko, who is uh, Rachel's nanny, but he's a man, so he's called a manny and not an au pair, a bro pair. (laughs) (laughs) These real terms, Maggie Alderson, or did you make them up? (laughs) No, they're real terms. Yeah, they're real terms. I mean, I'd heard manny and then I was chatting to a a friend about a book and she she told me about bro pair and that was just so good I had to use it but the, but he's an interesting character because he's called a manny and a bro pair but he actually blurs 
genders. Um, so, yeah. so that was a deliberate thing that I wanted to, yeah, it was, it was idea great. I and wanted to bring in. It's that whole thing that, you know, his secret is not so much a secret. He knows who he has to keep it a secret from. He knows who visually he has to keep it a secret from. But mm, does it give him modelling potential? Aha, uh-huh, that's another bit of this. So it really is lovely, all of this crossing of, you know, sort of the borders of um, social ide- social and personal identity and how they're shown. Because you're a bit of a blogger too, aren't you? Bit of a blogger, a bit of an Instagrammer. I love all that. <laughs> so, do you find that it really does take on your life? Because you you do do it pretty regularly. Well, I sometimes I do sometimes forget that I have. You know, when you're sitting alone in a your little study at home and you think, and whatever's at the front of my mind is what I write write about, and then. Doing this book tour and meeting lots of really, really lovely people, and they say, "Oh, how's your daughter getting on with her ballet?" And I, I oh, oh yes, I did mention that, didn't I? And so sometimes you don't quite realise how much you're revealing, and I don't have any great secrets that I have to uh, curate, as it were. But I think you can, you can lose the distinction between private and public through social media. Yes, and we're going to finish it with a quote from the book. Um, Tessa, I'm not used to keeping secrets. I had no idea it took up such a lot of energy. Yeah, lies beget lies, secrets beget secrets. A fabulous read. This is Maggie Alderson's Secret Keeping for Beginners. It's it's You, you keep turning to find out because you get halfway through it and you think, how is it all going to be fixed without doing a lot of hurt? And you did it, Maggie Alderson. You, you gave us a really Jan. good read right to the end. And, of course, once again with Maggie's books, there's a little bit of um, uh, Australia with a, quite a bit of London and, and, and England. It's just lovely. So, Maggie Elson, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And her book, Secret Keeping for Beginners, is published by HarperCollins. And keep writing, keep reading and keep blogging and just do those things you're good at. Okay, so do. <laughs> okay, thanks, Thank Maggie. you. And you're on 3CR listening to Published or Not and you're disappearing, Maggie. You've got a um, luncheon engagement to get to. Josh, so we'll so much. go into the next interview. Yes. Short stories introduce us to people, take us to places, and enable us to explore emotions we otherwise might not have. Such is the case in Murray Middleton's When There's Nowhere Else to Run. So, Murray, welcome to 3CR. Thanks a lot for having me. I feel like it's a good segue from the last interview because I had to keep this a secret, of course, for seven months. All right. Yeah. Now, uh, firstly, congratulations on the Vogel Award. Thanks a lot. I think it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. Well, how important is that sort of recognition? Oh, it's just, I mean, it's all about being published. That alone just made my dreams come true, you know, overnight, actually. So I. So st- you're an overnight success after how many years? After over a decade of writing, I'm an overnight success. <laughs> That's the timeline <laughs> that it generally takes uh, with this collection of uh, short stories. Um, how did you choose the stories to go into it? If you've been writing for 10 years, you must have a backlog. Yeah, well, a really good way to start writing, of course, is to try and build up some shorts and hopefully get some publications. Uh, So I found that for a while I was just writing short after short without anything in common. But once I actually got the title and a theme, this running theme, running stories, 
to work for me, it, the stories themselves started to come together, and I had 17, and I shaved it back to 14 for this collection. Well, I do want to get onto that theme, that notion of theme, and what binds these stories together. It's one of the challenges of interviewing someone about a collection of short stories, because different characters, different narrators, all sorts of things, different scenarios. But let's start with uh, one called Queen Adelaide Restaurant, and I just want to read something, if I may. We have... Um, the character um, meeting somebody on the train, a, um, a veteran on the train, but the narrator is a writer. I didn't feel like a real-life writer. A photographer from the newspaper had visited me at work shortly before the announcement and lined me up against a steel roller door. He asked me to smile a brooding writer's smile. It occurred to me that I'd have to be an actor, not a writer, to be able to pull that off. I thought it was a very skilful piece, said Pete. And I'm not just saying that. You've definitely got away with words. I remember being very impressed with the first line, even though I've completely forgotten what it was now. Bluey Randall reckoned he'd seen enough darkness for one lifetime, I said. That's it. Fantastic. Opening sentence. Tells us everything we need to know about the man. He coughed into his handkerchief again. Looking at you now, though, I'm guessing you haven't spent too much time yourself down in the mines, so I'm wondering how it is you got to know all those details. Now, that sort of encapsulates the life of a writer. A personal comment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've only permitted myself to have one story that has anything to do with writers, of course, in this. But, yeah, that anecdote may or may not be based on an interaction with a Fairfax photographer many years ago, um, which still makes me chuckle. But, yeah, I, I love this story. Really, someone who considers themselves a budding young writer, but he's, it's actually revealed later in that story that he's never actually left Western Australia until age 27. So he might think via research he knows a lot about the world, but in actual fact, he doesn't know that much. But how, how personal is it then about being a writer and um, imagining scenarios? I'm, I'm reading you into this somehow. Oh, you've got every right, I think, to <laughs> read me into that. Yeah, I, I love researching and I'm a bit weedy as well. And the, one of the things when you set out to write is to find that duality between withdrawing yourself to get work done but to an extent you still need to live a human life and experience emotions if you get that balance too wrong in either direction i think your writing's definitely going to be compromised yeah so yeah having that experience but also being able to imagine that experience um the eponymous story that gives its title to the book is when there's nowhere else to run now here's something interesting you've chosen a female narrator for that story how do you cope as a writer doing that uh, a lot of research. Five years ago, I made a list of all my weakest qualities as a writer, and number one was first-person female stories. So I set out for six months to only write stories with a female narrator and gave them only to female friends to try and improve at that. Uh, so this story, it still felt like it needed the stipulation in the opening paragraph that she did attend an all-girls school in Johannesburg. But once I got into the flow of the story, it actually started to come quite naturally. And probably someone like Kate Kennedy, who helped me with this collection, she writes males so well. So when I read her, she said, just get the core emotions right and your readers will go along for the ride. Yeah, it, but it, it sounds like there's a fair bit of discipline that's gone in behind that as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I always like to make a list of all the things I'm not good at as a writer. And even now, just... By virtue of being published, it doesn't mean you don't have extreme weaknesses. So for the next time round as well, I've got to improve a lot if I'm going to get better at this. Well, it's a, a continual craft that you've got to keep working at. Um, well, the story itself then, nowhere else, when there's nowhere else to run, friends waiting for someone to die. 
Yeah, there's there's an inevitability about the outcome, but what I re- I wanted to delve into the lives of these characters and these friends in their 20s, and they do so many things that people do in their 20s. They watch HBO shows, they go to music festivals and take drugs, they go out on dates to Moroccan soup bars even, and I wanted to bring that home with the injustice of what they're being forced to go through um, to show how hard it is for them. And as with all these stories, I suppose, there is no protocol to follow. They're all learning it as they go along, and we're just happening to see it through the eyes of the narrator and she's a nurse and the whole story she seems to be in control but when the character finally passes away at the end she actually doesn't know what to do anymore well that that connection um if you're a nurse you need to sort of make create that distance but if it's a friend you're nursing it's a challenge well yeah yeah absolutely right i mean there's a line in there where she says i never she was the last person in the world i wanted to be a patient Um, And I talked, I love researching because I'm a bit of a nerd, and I talked a lot with a nurse about this, not even necessarily to use what she was saying for the story, but just to understand the way she put a distance between her and the people she was dealing with every day. Mm. This sort of is leading me into the notion of the theme which we raised before. Is there an overall tone or theme to the collection then? Absolutely. I I like to call them running stories. They're stories where characters are either going on the run themselves, such as the hit-and-run story, or perhaps being forced to run, but sometimes not of their own accord. Like the story, The Fields of Early Sorrow, which won the age comp about four years ago when the brother's driving his sister to a rehabilitation clinic in Lismore. She certainly isn't willing in that process, and it's as much about them both butting heads in terms of what they want. That's where the real dramatic action occurs in the story. But there's an overriding sense then of, of melancholy or compassion or guilt. Is there a, a central notion about humanity sort of thing? Yeah, I'd, what I would say about humanity, and I'm still only quite young, but one thing I already think is living a human life and getting through a life is a bloody hard thing. And there's going to be you're going to experience so many emotions along the way and we're all, whether we like it or not, going to go through a lot, perhaps some sooner rather than later. And it seems to me almost inadvertently that in this collection people are being displaced and forced to deal with being powerless in situations they just have no protocol for. But, but is that really what our lives are? A, a, a powerless uh, sort of, uh, what would you call it, interaction in many ways? I'm inclined. I mean, what do I really know at my age? But I'm inclined to think yes. At this are you feeling point. old, Jan? At this present point in time? <laughs> well, if I was a Romanian gymnast, I'm sure they'd take me out to pasture by now, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know that that notion of experience, that the unexpected and what we have to deal with, um, and then placing yourself in that situation. I mean, there's the story, of course, of the the hit and run, where he doesn't do the right thing, so to speak. Um, but yeah, being faced in that, placed in that situation, what would you do? Oh, it's a tough question. He almost, if this makes sense, he almost finds himself not doing the right thing in spite of himself. He's almost waiting for that, his conscience to kick in and for himself to think, well, no, I should go back and take responsibility at the scene of the crime. But it's, it's like, um, a child in many ways doing something wrong um, and then do I admit to it or do I just hope it'll go away? But then you escalate what the accident is. It's a human life. And he almost can't... He doesn't know entirely what's happened. I mean, he imagines that the person he's struck has probably passed away or suffered a serious injury, but there's even a scene where it, I think it's about 2am in the morning, he's listening to the radio news and just waiting almost to hear confirmation of this hit and run, and he doesn't get it, and he almost feels 
disappointed by that news. But did it actually occur if it's not on the radio sort of thing or on the news? That's right. Um, to me, of course, I believe it did occur. Um, but he doesn't have that knowledge. I think he needs it the more the story goes. Mm. Uh, you've got a story there called Open Misere where uh, Raymond has been taken in. Raymond's uh, struggling with life. Um, and the sort of uh, last line of that story, it was nice to hear him complain. What are you doing there? Uh, it's an odd way to end a story, isn't it? But uh, what this whole time there's this young narrator who's in his VCE and he... There's a few stilted stories like this where the children almost don't quite know what's going on. They're describing these very contained scenes and he knows that this man has probably a degree of PTSD, but the exact nature of what the character Raymond's gone through in Black Saturday, the kid neither knows about or particularly cares if I'm being critical. And in, in the end, I think the kid just, in seeing Raymond finally start to complain about the card hand after all these months staying with him, he's almost seeing him come to life, and there's no promises in that ending, but it is a slightly happy ending. But, but Slightly happy. But there you've got, uh, as you say, a student going through VCE whose compass of the world is quite narrow, and then you've got Raymond, who, PTSD, um, struggling with life. How is that student meant to understand or appreciate uh, what Raymond's going through? He almost can't. Yeah. Uh, it's inaccessible to him, but I suppose the story is comprised of him time and time again just trying to put the pieces together like he recognizes at one point that his parents are forcing Raymond to leave the house every day for a walk but then they're veering away from the common walking tracks and he almost knows by virtue of doing that that they do want to take him away from other people. But in many ways you learn by experience you learn by observation rather than actually being told how to deal with life you've got to observe what's going on. And that's what I like doing I feel like Ever since I've been quite young and by virtue of probably being someone who's quite private and quiet, I have been observing a lot of people and I find them so interesting. And hopefully across all 14 stories, there's, you can tell that I just like writing a lot of different characters of different ages, different religions, different backgrounds. But uh, is there a common humanity then behind them all sort of thing? Well, I suppose this is probably how I perceive the most it's the most interesting point in all of the characters lives I'm picking them up at what I believe is the most interesting point knowing a lot of their pasts and it's a point at which humanity is being explored I suppose in their lives mm. and it's not always a, a sort of joyful humanity it's, it's no. The, the, the no he says I mean you've got one there mainstream the mother is taking her autistic child across the country uh, with what in mind well, that's a very good question. I'm trying to keep that at arm's length from the reader as the story's unfolding, but you get this sense as she's flying her son who's been expelled from a mainstream school to Western Australia that this might well be one of their last journeys together and she's trying to lap it up, but I'm also inviting the reader to share how hard her life is on a daily basis. But she's also exhausted she's, by the, having that child, yes. Absolutely. I mean, we were actually talking off-air, if we are allowed to admit that, about our experiences in the education industry and about how it certainly can take your toll when you're working with autistic children. It wears away at you, but I can't fathom going home at night after doing mm. eight hours of that and then being expected to start from scratch. That was, I suppose, what I was trying to imagine in this story. Yeah, the whole timeline of working with an autistic child changes. It takes four or five times as long to get something through. You've got to, And you've got to work with the child. You can't go at your pace. Oh, there's a scene, hopefully, which embodies exactly what you're saying, where the son is staring at this cartoon outside the Fremantle Herald building and the mother 
is so sick of explaining everything that she just says, can we not worry about this right now, sweetie, and just keep walking? <laughs> we're trying to get to the end of the thing. Get it's, to the end. That's, get, what we're, that's where we're at, David. Get Getting to the end of the radio program. We are. We are indeed. We've got different clocks saying different things. <laughs> How much time have I got, Jan? I've got to cut it short. There are affairs. There's guilt. There's all sorts of things in this collection. Uh, we could ramble forever, Murray. Um, but the book is When There's Nowhere Else to Run. Uh, the author is the award-winning mm. Murray Middleton. I think we should say that. Applause. We've got a, an applause pack. <laughs> and the book is put out by Alan and Unwood. So, look, Murray, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for reading it and thanks a lot for having me. Oh, big day. Big day.